Second part of Chapter 3 of the Second Volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter 3 Industry, Government, and War. Part 2. Side note Its Tyranny. Wealth is excessive when it reduces a man to a middleman and a jobber, when it prevents him, in his preoccupation with material things, from making his spirit the measure of them. There are Nibelungen who toil underground over a gold they will never use, and in their obsession with production begrudge themselves all holidays, all concessions to inclination, to merriment, to fancy. Nay, they would even curtail as much as possible the free years of their youth, when they might see the blue before rendering up their souls to the Leviathan. Visible signs of such unreason soon appear in the relentless and hideous aspect which life puts on. For those instruments which somehow emancipate themselves from their uses soon become hateful. In nature irresponsible wildness can be turned to beauty, because every product can be recomposed into some abstract manifestation of force or form. But the monstrous in man himself and in his works immediately offends, for here everything is expected to symbolize its moral relations. The irrational in the human has something about it altogether repulsive and terrible, as we see in the maniac, the miser, the drunkard, or the ape. A barbaric civilization, built on blind impulse and ambition, should fear to awaken a deeper detestation than could ever be aroused by those more beautiful tyrannies, chivalrous or religious, against which past revolutions have been directed. Side note: An Impossible Remedy Both the sordidness and the luxury which industrialism may involve could be remedied, however, by a better distribution of the product. The riches now created by labor would probably not seriously debauch mankind if each man had only his share, and such a proportionate return would enable him to perceive directly how far his interests required him to employ himself in material production, and how far he could allow himself leisure for spontaneous things—religion, play, art, study, conversation. In a world composed entirely of philosophers, an hour or two a day of manual labor, a very welcome quantity, would provide for material wants. The rest could then be all the more competently dedicated to a liberal life. For a healthy soul needs matter quite as much for an object of interest as for a means of sustenance. But philosophers do not yet people nor even govern the world and so simple a utopia which reason, if it had direct efficacy, would long ago have reduced to act, is made impossible by the cross-currents of instinct, tradition, and fancy, which variously deflect affairs. Side note, basis of government. What are called the laws of nature are so many observations made by man on a way things have of repeating themselves, by replying always to their old causes, and never, as reason's prejudice would expect, to their new opportunities. This inertia, which physics registers in the first law of motion, natural history and psychology call habit. Habit is a physical law. It is the basis and force of all morality, but is not morality itself. 
in society it takes the form of custom which when codified is called law and when enforced is called government government is the political representative of a natural equilibrium of custom of inertia it is by no means a representative of reason but like any mechanical complication it may become rational and many of its forms and operations may be defended on rational grounds all natural organisms from protoplasm to poetry can exercise certain ideal functions and symbolize in their structure certain ideal relations protoplasm tends to propagate itself and in so doing may turn into a conscious ideal the end it already tends to realize but there could be no desire for self-preservation were there not already a self-preserved so government can by its existence define the commonwealth it tends to preserve and its acts may be approved from the point of view of those eventual interests which they satisfy but government neither subsists nor arises because it is good or useful but solely because it is inevitable it becomes good in so far as the inevitable adjustment of political forces which it embodies is also a just provision for all the human interests which it creates or affects side note how rationality accrues suppose a cold and hungry savage failing to find berries and game enough in the woods should descend into some meadow where a flock of sheep were grazing and pounce upon a lame lamb which could not run away with the others tear its flesh suck up its blood and dress himself in its skin all this could not be called an affair undertaken in the sheep's interest and yet it might well conduce to their interest in the end for the savage finding himself soon hungry again and sufficiently warm in that scanty garment might attack the flock a second time and thereby begin to accustom himself and also his delighted family to a new and more substantial sort of raiment and diet suppose now a pack of wolves or a second savage or a disease should attack those unhappy sheep would not their primeval enemy defend them would he not have identified himself with their interests to this extent that their total extinction or discomfiture would alarm him also and in so far as he provided for their well-being would he not have become a good shepherd if now some philosophic weather a lover of his kind reasoned with his fellows upon the change in their condition he might shudder indeed at those early episodes and at the contribution of lambs and fleeces which would not cease to be levied by the new government but he might also consider that such a contribution was nothing in comparison with what was formerly exacted by wolves diseases frosts and casual robbers when the flock was much smaller than it had now grown to be and much less able to withstand decimation and he might even have conceived an admiration for the remarkable wisdom and beauty of that great shepherd dressed in such a wealth of wool and he might remember pleasantly some occasional caress received from him and the daily trough filled with water by his providential hand and he might not be far from maintaining not only the rational origin but the divine right of shepherds such a savage enemy incidentally turned into a useful master is called a conqueror or king only in human experience the case is not so simple and harmony is seldom established so quickly 
the history of asia is replete with examples of conquest and extortion in which a rural population living in comparative plenty is attacked by some more ferocious neighbor who after a round of pillage establishes a quite unnecessary government raising taxes and soldiers for purposes absolutely remote from the conquered people's interests such a government is nothing but a chronic raid mitigated by the desire to leave the inhabitants prosperous enough to be continually despoiled afresh even this modicum of protection however can establish a certain moral bond between ruler and subject an intelligent government and an intelligent fealty become conceivable Sidenote. ferocious but useful despotisms not only may the established regime be superior to any other that could be substituted for it at the time but some security against total destruction and a certain opportunity for the arts and for personal advancement may follow subjugation a moderate decrease in personal independence may be compensated by a novel public grandeur palace and temple may make amends for hovels somewhat more squalid than before hence those who cannot conceive a rational polity or a cooperative greatness in the state especially if they have a luxurious fancy can take pleasure in despotism for it does not after all make so much difference to an ordinary fool whether what he suffers from is another's oppression or his own lazy improvidence and he can console himself by saying with goldsmith how small of all that human hearts endure the part which laws or kings can cause or cure at the same time a court and a hierarchy with their interesting pomp and historic continuity with their combined appeal to greed and imagination redeem human existence from pervasive vulgarity and allow somebody at least to strut proudly over the earth serfs are not in a worse material condition than savages and their spiritual opportunities are infinitely greater for their eye and fancy are fed with visions of human greatness and even if they cannot improve their outward estate they can possess a poetry and a religion it suffices to watch an oriental rabble at prayer or listening in profound immobility to some wandering storyteller or musician to feel how much such a people may have to ruminate upon and how truly arabian days and arabian nights go together the ideas evolved may be wild and futile and the emotions savagely sensuous yet they constitute a fund of inner experience a rich soil for better imaginative growths to such oriental cogitations for instance carried on under the shadow of uncontrollable despotisms mankind owes all its greater religions a government's origin has nothing to do with its legitimacy that is with its representative operation an absolutism based on conquest or on religious fraud may wholly lose its hostile function it may become the nucleus of a national organization expressing justly enough the people's requirements such a representative character is harder to attain when the government is foreign for diversity in race language and local ties makes the ruler less apt involuntarily to represent his subjects his measures must subserve their interests intentionally out of sympathy policy and a sense of duty 
virtues which are seldom efficacious for any continuous period a native government even if based on initial outrage can more easily drift into excellence for when a great man mounts the throne he has only to read his own soul and follow his instinctive ambitions in order to make himself the leader and spokesman of his nation an alexander an alfred a peter the great are examples of persons who with varying degrees of virtue were representative rulers their policy however irrationally inspired happened to serve their subjects and the world besides a native government is less easily absolute many influences control the ruler in his aims and habits such as religion custom and the very language he speaks by which praise and blame are assigned automatically to the objects loved or hated by the people he cannot unless he be an intentional monster oppose himself wholly to the common soul side note occasional advantage of being conquered for this very reason however native governments are little fitted to redeem or transform a people and all great upheavals and regenerations have been brought about by conquest by the substitution of one race and spirit for another in the councils of the world what the orient owes to greece the occident to rome india to england native america to spain is a civilization incomparably better than that which the conquered people could ever have provided for themselves conquest is a good means of recasting those ideals perhaps impracticable and ignorant which a native government at its best would try to preserve such inapt ideals it is true would doubtless remodel themselves if they could be partly realized progress from within is possible otherwise no progress would be possible for humanity at large but conquest gives at once a freer field to those types of polity which since they go with strength presumably represent the better adjustment to natural conditions and therefore the better ideal though the substance of ideals is the will their mould must be experience and a true discernment of opportunity so that while all ideals regarded in vacuo are equal in ideality they are under given circumstances very diverse in worth side note origin of free governments when not founded on conquest which is the usual source of despotism government is ordinarily based on traditional authority vested in elders or patriarchal kings this is the origin of the classic state and of all aristocracy and freedom the economic and political unit is a great household with its lord his wife and children clients and slaves in the interstices of these households there may be a certain floating residuum freedmen artisans merchants strangers these people while free are without such rights as even slaves possess they have no share in the religion education and resources of any established family for purposes of defense and religion the heads of houses gather together in assemblies elect or recognize some chief and agree upon laws usually little more than extant customs regulated and formally sanctioned end of section nine chapter three part two recording by pamela Krantz.